Welcome to another episode of The Baba Guys. My name is Rick Clarin. I'm joined here as always with Jerry. Jerry, how are you doing today? Rick, I'm fantastic. Awesome. Uh, Jerry, we were talking uh, before uh, we went on the air. Jerry, um, you uh, we were talking about stuff going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, oh, yeah, all the uncut comments yeah, we and, made. Right. Jerry, uh, Are you? they're talking about people putting their name in for Southern Baptist. Are you Southern Baptist? I am not. I know virtually nothing about the Southern Baptist. So what we're hearing is you're not going to run, make a run for the presidency in 2022? As of now, that's probably correct. Okay. I think we could start a grassroots candidacy right now in the right, Bible, guys. Right in. Right in votes for Jerry Hollinger as president of the SBC. Hmm. Could I be your SBC chief of staff? Excellent. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Uh, we probably should just get back into the questions. All right. So we got a question from... Why would you, why would you even bring up the SBC? Because <laughs> I wanted to see if you'd start something. The well, f- you know I'm, what I'm not going to say. Well, the fans have been telling us. They've been sending emails. It's like, we really enjoy the Baba guys, but we want to hear Jerry uncut. We want to hear him go. And uh, I'm just trying to pick a fight. I can't do that until I'm retired. All right. Because until then, I do not have liberty. How many more years you got? Well, it depends on the donations coming in. <laughs> All right, there it is. So. <laughs> if you want to give to the Jerry Hollinger Retirement Fund to get full, full uncut Jerry, <laughs> we will, we will take your donations. We are just kidding. But let's get into our question today, uh, because we got a question here, and this is one of those things that could kind of um, rock people's boats. Uh, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. Many people know this passage. I'm going to read it out of the King James version because that's the version that tends to give people some questions about what we're talking about. The passage reads, where there is no vision, the people perish. And Mm. I'm going to stop there, because that's really the line that is is mostly quoted um, during this time. Yeah, I hear that all the time. I hear it in sermons, hear it in um, conferences, leadership classes, on and on. And I'll, I'll be quite honest, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty nice guy. Yeah. I think I'm patient. I would agree. But this one really perturbs me. Mm-hmm. And it perturbs me not only on the interpretive level, but on a deeper level that I guess we'll probably get to later. I believe we will. So let's get into that. So where do we hear this? And you mentioned you hear different conferences and things like that. Where do we hear this? Maybe I should say incorrectly. Where's the big place we hear this? Well, I've heard it two places. I've heard it in very fundamentalist Baptist churches where they relate it to evangelism. Mm-hmm. And then we've also heard it kind of on a Christian professional level as Christians um, talk about a vision for their Christian company or a vision for their church. And they think to be a good leader, you have to have that and then this becomes the text because, after all, we can't do anything, can we, unless we Christianize it, right, to make it legitimate. And I think I would say, I would say at the outset, I don't know how you feel. I'm not saying that I'm against a leader having a vision for his company or the ministry or a local church. I'm not against that by any means. What I'm against is when this becomes the defining chief characteristic that we have to hire or look for someone who has vision. Yeah, because um, without vision, the people perish. And and mm-hmm. I'm against using this as a proof text. And we'll talk more about the dangers I feel, uh, and I believe you feel as well at the end. So let's let's talk about this passage in its original Hebrew. What's going on in the passage? Well, there are two key words. The first is vision, mm-hmm. 
And um, the second would be the uh, term parish. So right. s- starting with the term vision, that doesn't refer to somebody's goals for what they might want to do in the ministry. The term vision here has the idea of a prophetic vision. Right. In the Hebrew, we have the Hebrew word kazah, uh-huh. which ha- always refers to when it's used. By the way, it's only used in Proverbs here. Ah, interesting. So that's an important point to make. But when it's used, it's always referring to God's re- God revealing himself. Uh-huh. That's an important point to make. It's so... He's revealing himself and his will to the prophets. Uh, he does this in like 1 Samuel one thirty one. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 3, 1. And then um, it's always about his self-revelation. It's not meant as a personal vision or a corporate goal of like the king or what have you. And it's really better translated, in my opinion. I'm not sure how you feel about it. I always, I prefer to translate this as the word revelation. I, I like that. I I either that or prophetic vision mm-hmm. because that was one of the um, things that made a prophet a prophet. He was receiving direct revelation from God that he was to share with the people. So I think that's very legitimate, as you say, to translate it revelation or prophetic vision if we understand what it meant to be a prophet. Yeah, the ESV takes the prophetic vision um, use, while the HCSB, the CSB, and the NIV take revelation. Most of other yeah. passages do that. All right, now the second word. Yes. <laughs> this is so different. I mean, the, uh, not knowing the history of the translation of the King James back in the um, 1600s, just from a modern perspective, this one just doesn't communicate at all the point. And the word parish here, and I think that's because of the, the translation parish, that's why your heavy fundamentalists would relate this to evangelism, because when they see parish, they think of sinners dying and going to hell. And I'm not making light of that at all. I'm simply saying it's a misunderstanding of the text. So the word translated vision, or parish rather, in the King James really has the idea of being unrestrained. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different versions that read it differently. Uh, you just mentioned under strange. So, for example, you have uh, in the ESV, it says, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. The New American Standard says, where there's no vision, so it uses that, but it says the people are unrestrained. Yep. Um, my personal favorite, the HCSB, says, without revelation, people run wild. Yeah, and that's how the NLT does it right? as well. And then there's another one I really like is um, the New Jerusalem Bible, where there is no vision, the people get... <laughs> I laugh when I read this. When there is no vision, the people get out of hand. Yeah, it's good. So <laughs> cast, cast off restraint, get out of hand, run wild. I think that's the sense of the term. Yeah, and so when we're... So when I interpret this passage, if I, so I've just translated it, when I, as I interpret this and look at it, what I'm seeing is, is emphasizing the importance of divine revelation. Yes. And that divine revelation is very important because... Um, and this, is, this is a quote I have here from um, Richard Langer, his um, article, Revelation as a Concept. Here's what he says. He says, conceptually, revelation involves a four-place relation in which a subject, the revealer, reveals an object, that which is revealed, to a recipient, which is the audience of the revelation, by certain means, the instrument of revelation. Now, there's a lot going on there, but here's what he says. In a theological context, this is the key, God is generally considered to be both the revealer and the revealed. Hmm. So in this sense, revelation is always God's self-revelation. 
So really what's happening in this passage is that God is revealing himself for the nation of Israel's well-being. Right. That's the key. Right. And without it, these people are going to make some big mistakes. Yeah, and that that would be one of the worst things for ancient Israel if God stopped revealing himself. So this really would be a form of judgment. And what you said and our interpretation is validated by the last part of the verse, which virtually nobody ever reads, but blessed is he who keeps the law, Mm -hmm. as opposed to God revealing, not revealing himself, people getting out of hand. The contrast to that is being obedient to what God has revealed. And And you said it really well there, how the people of Israel, that would be the worst thing for them, to, to stop getting revelation. Yeah. And Amos warns about it, Amos chapter 8, uh, verses 11 through 12. He, he warns that Yahweh, God, is going to send a famine of his word, of his revelation. And then Lamentations includes it as well. And then you see it all through the prophets, uh, which, which is why in, in Malachi you have that period between Malachi and Matthew called the silent years, mm-hmm. where there's no revelation from God. Yeah, 400 years until John the Baptist comes so, on the scene. So this is something that is, even while Proverbs mentions it, this is something that's kind of built in the DNA of the people of Israel. They knew that without God's revelation, his revealing himself, they were in serious trouble. Yes. So that's the interpretation that we take of the passage. Mm-hmm. However, when it's used in leadership conferences, leadership training things, and it makes as makes it as the the chief qualification of a leader is vision. That's where I again I'm not against vision. You need to have some vision for whatever you're doing. Like what do you want to see happen? The danger becomes when it may, then that when that is the penultimate qualification of a leader. Right. And and then usually what happens is that concept is presented and then you know, the text is just cited because you have to have something that sounds biblical. Mm-hmm. And then it's not even a vision that is necessarily found in Scripture. Because I've said before, and I don't know to what level you agree with me, but let's just take something like the pastor of a church or what a local church should be doing or a new leader that's hired by a church. Really the blueprint for what that person should be doing is already laid out in Scripture. And so I think a lot of times... The vision is there. We either are ignorant of that vision that God has given us, or we simply don't like it because it appears to be out of step with the culture, and we don't think that our ministries will become successful in the worldly sense. So um, that's one of my frustrations here. Yeah, if you're a, if you're at a church and you see a pastor come in and his vision is to make disciples of all nations, and you see that as visionary— you're in a lot of trouble before you even call that pastor. Yeah. I mean, there's 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 a lot of problems already at that church. If you see a pastor who's asking about or who's talking about sharing the gospel, making disciples, and building one another up, that's visionary. That's that's dangerous because that's new for you. You're concerned. You're, yeah. you're worried. Yeah. I'm worried about you for if that's what you think. Yeah, I mean the the ministry of a church is not sensational. There's really nothing flashy. And I think when people are looking for a new leader, that's what they tend to be looking for, which is a a very immature stance, in my opinion. Now, Scripture does tell us this. I I remember a former pastor of mine constantly referred to this passage where he says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. That has been the key. um, it's, It's just always in my head. 
You know, like, yeah, we can be flashing. That's great. I'm not against vision again, but faithfulness is my key. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to be faithful into doing what God has called me to do, where God has put me, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be in front of a church, whether anywhere, whether it be here on the Bible Guys, that that we are being faithful to what God has asked us to do. Exactly right. And, and you know, something else in that discussion that I think is often omitted and I've read a lot of a lot of books on on the ministry, on the pastorate. Not so many much on leadership, although some. But I wouldn't say I'd necessarily keep up with it anymore. But what I found of, find of interest is that in the Bible you have three epistles specifically written for what a leader is to be like and what a leader is to emphasize in the church. And that's First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Mm-hmm. And I find it of just—I don't know whether to be embarrassed or upset—but if you look at the current literature on on ministry, a lot of times and leadership, and you go to the index, if you even find a scriptural index, which you probably won't, but even if you do, you're not going to find hardly anything on the three books specifically written for that. Shouldn't we at least start there, you know, even if there are other things to add, or even if, as you've really, I think, intimated, there are common sense things, you know, in leadership that we should use as part of God's common grace. But I find it very disturbing that, you know, there's just nothing virtually about the very material in the New Testament which addresses the subject. You see a lot of Old Testament stuff. Yeah. You see a lot of Nehemiah. See, that's the same problem. Let's spiritualize Nehemiah to make it say something it was never intended to say. Yeah, Nehemiah wasn't planning a church. (laughs) (laughs) And the book wasn't written to give tips on leadership. No, no, because I would even look at that and go, no, that's not not how I want to (laughs) fuck. Where the place where he grabs them by the hair and he beats some of them. (laughs) I'm like, why? Well, I've I've seen that look in your eyes, a leader. You've wanted to do it. Not something you need to do. but yeah, I agree with you, especially when we talk about the qualifications of the of the church leader, the pastor, the elder. Um, all of those, except for able to teach, have to do with the man's character. Character counts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I get nervous about. Is sometimes that we can follow a visionary, and they're easy to follow mm-hmm. because you get caught up in the in the greatness of the vision, and you're like, yes, there's something in the human heart that we want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. The problem is is we're following a visionary, but we're not following, sometimes we, we're not following men of integrity. Yeah. And that can be a dangerous thing. You know, this is a, this sounds kind of odd to make this connection, but this is really, in my view, a form of worldliness as well. Uh, when we think of worldliness, we tend to think of, you know, a list of things we're not supposed to do. But I don't really think we're so much duped by that anymore. If you look at, at the key text in the New Testament on worldliness, Romans 12, uh, Paul's going to mention thinking as the issue, one's viewpoint, one's outlook on life. Worldliness at its heart is a way of thinking. It's, it's thinking in the way the culture thinks. And when we import this visionary concept into the church or a Christian ministry, what we're really doing is we're bringing in the worldly viewpoint of what makes a leader a leader and what vision is as distinct to what you just mentioned. The Bible tells us what a leader should be like, 
And then I still maintain that the Bible gives us the vision itself. And, you know, you mentioned 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2. I think in the first, what, 12, 13, 14 verses, Paul gives a series of qualities he had when he came to Thessalonica. Uh, 2 Corinthians is virtually a, you know, defense by Paul of himself. And, and you read all of these things he's saying, what he was like, what he preached. I mean, that gives us the core of what a person should be like in the church. Um, so, again, I, I think we've just strayed from, from Scripture, and I think we begin to look at church and church ministries the way the world does instead of how Scripture does. So I think if I'm going to use this passage as a leader, you know, I think, of course you can. Um, if I'm a leader, I think this is more not about who to look for, but how am I leading? So this passage, I believe, as we've said, is about prophetic revelation. God is revealing himself. He is both the revealer and the revealed. My, If I could take this as a leader, to what extent am I revealing God in how I lead? That's where I want to go here. Yeah. Am I revealing God both in word, or and am I revealing God in my actions? Uh, to, to the point, if, if I'm a leader and I'm leading people out of fear, you know, driving them, or am I, am I leading them out of some narcissistic attempt at achieving something I want, then I'm failing. But if I'm revealing the character of God in how I lead, then I believe I'm leading with vision, if you want to use that terminology. I, I think an application I would make very similar to that is that this would indicate that we should major in our churches and in our ministries on the revelation of God. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to get people to live the way they should, and that's what is going to cause them to be um, happy and content in God. You know, use, you know, we don't get new revelation now, but take the revelation God has given us. And a leader, as you said, that's what he should be majoring on, what God has given us. And if I if I could add something else here that kind of is under my skin a little bit, if you're done with specifically here. Keep going. All right. Um, I think passages like this are just symptomatic of a larger problem. And I think back, I think it was in the mid-'90s. You, I'm sure you probably read this book. Um, D.A. Carson wrote The Gagging of God. Mm -hmm. um, massive volume. And if memory serves me correctly, that was, wow, some 25 years ago. Um, he was The book was really talking about pluralism. But I, I often borrow the ti Carson's title, The Gagging of God, and apply it places like this because we play so fast and loose with the Bible that I think we, as supposedly Bible-believing Christians, we gag God as much as liberals do. So you take a liberal theologian who denies the Bible has any divine authority at all. They're certainly not going to relay what God has chosen to reveal. And then here you have us <clears throat> as Christians many times <clears throat> claiming to believe the Bible is God's revelation, but then playing little games like this where we just pick off this verse with no regard for what it means and then use it any way we want. Have we not essentially gagged God as much as the liberal theologian has? Either way, God's message hasn't come across. And this particular verse is not that difficult. 
you don't have to know Hebrew to understand it. Just read some other translations. Yeah. And all of the rest of these get it right, at least the ones I've read, except the King James Version. Mm-hmm. And what's happening, and I like the word you used a moment ago, narcissist, um, we've just become self-absorbed in ourselves, and we're viewing the Bible in a way that it can be a resource book for whatever fuels anything I want to think, anything I want to do, and uh, you know, I just quote some verse for it. Uh, this, this is a major insult to God and to the Spirit, and it, it does great disrepute to Scripture. I like how you mentioned that this is a, a symptom of a greater problem, because I would agree, there are so many times, especially in, let's go back to it, leadership, leadership books or church leadership books, that oftentimes a verse like this is taken and it's used to promote a, a an agenda that the author already has. Yes. And it's not what God is saying in the passage. Right. Again, revelation exists to reveal God, the, reveal, the revealed. He is the revealer and the revealed. He's telling us about himself. He's not trying to put a rubber stamp on our opinions. And that that's where I tremble as I plan every Bible lesson, every Bible study, every sermon, because I'm about to, even if it's just, even if it's to a group of 10, 20, 30, couple hundred or whatever, I'm about to reveal something of who God is. And if I'm not careful with the text, I'm going to paint a caricature of who God really is. Yeah, it's sort of like him, but it's not him. And that has drastic and, I believe, eternal consequences to the audience and to myself. It does. And, you know, just the simple thing to remember that the Bible is is not about us. The Bible is not our story. The Bible is God's story. And by his grace, we have a part of what he's doing. And I would add, you know, when I said the Proverbs text is symptomatic, I'm not claiming that I've interpreted every verse correctly. Right. But there's a great difference between trembling, as you indicated, to do the best I can to study this text to get it right. There's a big difference between that and me just cherry picking things off, um, you know, to begin using with no regard for what the original intent of the author was. And, you know, I I hate to break it to people, but um, much of what is being said in the Christian world, you know, can be said in the world at large. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to be a Christian to quit smoking. You don't have to be a Christian to have a good marriage. Um, and yet we, we, I'm not sure what all <laughs> that all meant, but what I'm trying to say is how we will take verses to apply to things that have no intent at all for just because we're trying to create some structure of something we want to say. Yeah. And, um, that is a big deal, and I believe, and I, we know James says that that's why not many of us should be teachers. Yes. Because we're going to receive greater condemnation for how we've handled God's Word. Um, and that's another reason why the, the 1 Timothy 4.16, you went to the pastoral letters, I'm, that's 1 Timothy 4.16, if I have a life verse, that's it. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching and persevere in these things, for by doing so you'll save both yourself and your hearers. That when I stand before the Lord— Every lesson that I've studied and taught, whether I studied well for it or whether I just threw it together, 
I am going to have to give an account for it. Yep. And I'm going to tell you, that's very sobering to me um, because I have affected the eternal destiny of all my students and for either good or bad. And that's something that we cannot take lightly as teachers of God's word. Yeah, and it's a dual thing. We'll give an account for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But as you said, we'll also give an account for those who have sat under us. So could that be our vision? So if we're going to have vision, yeah. there's our vision then. Our vision is to rightly handle the Word of God so that the people who hear us, whether you hear us in the classroom, whether you hear us at a, ch- a church, or whether you're a listener to the Bible Guys, we can present you faultless before the throne, yeah. and we can have exceeding joy, and you as well can have exceeding joy. Paul, Paul says that in his letters. And uh, I know when I was a pastor, I would tell our church on occasion, my goal for you is that you have a good day of accounting at the judgment seat. And my role in doing that is to help you as best I can understand what the scripture says. That cuz that's what I'm that's my job. That's what I'm paid for. They those in my congregation, they're just as smart or smarter than I am, but they spend their work week doing something else. They don't have the the time to do what I'm able to do. So, I need to do my best to guide them and to teach them. Because if they're ignorant of Scripture, it's largely my fault. It's largely the pastor's fault. And um, again, I mean, this is God's Word. I mean, we've got to get serious about that. Yeah, I'd agree. Well, thank you for that question, listener. As always, we love to get your questions. You're, you're actually populating further ep- future episodes of The Baba Guys. So please send those questions to our email. That's at babaguyspodcast at gmail.com. You could also hit us up on Instagram or Twitter. Send the question that way. And that's at babaguyspod. That username is good for both uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, please sure to also like or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform so that you can be notified of new content when it's released every Friday at 8 a.m. For Jerry Hollinger, I'm Rick Kleinard. We'll see you next time.